The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. The Gospel of Luke, one of the four Gospels, written probably around 25 years after Jesus died and ascended back into heaven. The Gospel of Matthew has already been written. The Gospel of Mark has already been written. We don't know how much it got circulated around. We don't know... Um, how Luke, 25 years later, if he had access to Matthew and Mark. We do know that Luke was an associate of the Apostle Paul 20 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, that Luke had opportunity to go to Jerusalem, maybe several times. And we know that while he was in Jerusalem, he was talking to eyewitnesses of people who actually knew Jesus when he was alive on the earth. And he was doing his research and writing stuff down uh, so that he would be completely accurate in relaying the information that he knew about who Jesus was and what the significance of Jesus' life and ministry was, so that he could write it all down, came up with the longest book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke, and his immediate audience was this dignitary that he knew, we don't know the extent of their relationship, Theophilus, and that's who he addressed this Gospel to initially. And it could be that Theophilus had heard about Christ or Jesus and Christianity and didn't have the fullness of information and maybe was on the fence. We don't know. Kind of sounds like he's not yet saved or convinced yet because Luke is laboring for 24 uh, chapters to lay out the historical evidence that Jesus is who he said he was. He is the Christ. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the Son of God. He's the Son of Man. He's the Messiah. He is King. King of Israel, King of the world, King of the universe. That's who Jesus is. And so he's making his case, and he's being aided by the Spirit of God who's using the living truth of the word as Theophilus takes this information in and reads it and meditates upon it. And he's being confronted chapter after chapter with the person of Jesus Christ from his birth to his ascension and all of his main uh, events and ministry in between. So that's where we are in the Gospel of Luke. And God in his wisdom knew this wasn't just intended for Theophilus in 60. 1 AD, he knew that it was also going to be used as the Word of God to explain who Jesus was to all those living at that time in the life of Luke and Paul, and also for the early church in centuries beyond, even to this day, 2,000 years later. This is for us. And the goal of the Gospel of Luke is to get to know Jesus for who he truly is and who he fully is. And we've talked, we, the previous passage that we looked at in Luke chapter 9, we'll just pick up there, verses 18 to 27, the main point of emphasis there was Jesus asked, who is the Son of Man? Who do people say that I am? That was the question, and we talked about that. And people gave different answers. And uh, we learned from Luke that when Jesus asked that question, who do people say that I am? Most people got the answer wrong, including the disciples, the hundreds of thousands of disciples who had been following him for months and maybe even years. They still didn't get the right answer. And the Jewish leadership, who should have known, they didn't get the right answer. And Herod got it wrong, so everybody got it wrong. Even the 12 apostles didn't have the correct full answer of who Jesus was. Even after two plus years of ministry and being with him and watching him and being beneficiaries of his miracles, unprecedented miracles, they still didn't know. And then God in his sovereign grace, the Father of heaven, at that very moment when Jesus said, who do people say that I am? God in his grace took the veil away and gave Peter the apostle illumination to fully understand for the first time that Jesus was more than a man, more than a rabbi, more than a great Bible teacher, more than a miracle worker like Moses, but indeed he was the son of God and, and all the implications of what that meant. And he made that grand statement that Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus immediately said, Praise God, Peter, the Father in heaven revealed that to you. So that's what just happened. This great revelation, and this was up 30, 40 miles away north of Galilee, where they got away up near uh, Mount Hermon on the border of uh, northern Israel, where Jesus could be by himself, away from the crowds, away from the leadership who were trying to kill him, so that he could be just with his apostles for this last eight month, months or so before he died to give them final training, to give them warning, to really zero in and emphasize the purpose for which he came, which he hasn't fully disclosed up to this point. For two plus years, Jesus hasn't been emphasizing that he came first and foremost to die. He hasn't been saying that. 
Remember we talked about the message of Jesus? What was he preaching up at this time? Or when he sent the disciples out two by two and they were preaching on behalf of Jesus, what was the message they were preaching? They weren't going around door to door. Oh, let me tell you about Jesus, who's the Savior, who came to die on the cross, and he rose again from the dead, and he ascended into heaven, he's coming back again. That was not their message at this time, because Jesus hadn't been disclosing them the details of his death. But right now, after two plus years of his ministry, and now he's looking at eight years before his death and resurrection, he begins to fully disclose his death, the reality of it, and the meaning of his death. The meaning. And so he just, after Peter said the great news that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus said, Amen, then Jesus decided, you know what, I'm going to reveal now the details of why I came. I came to die. So he immediately disclosed that to those 12 apostles. Excellent, Peter. The Father's revealed this to you, and now just be aware that we are headed to Jerusalem. My face is set towards Jerusalem, and there I will be arrested, persecuted. I will suffer many things, and I will be killed. And they were just in absolute shock. They'd never really heard it like that before. Well, this isn't why we've been following you. You're the king. You're going to usher in the kingdom. What do you mean you're going to die? This goes against everything uh, that we've been thinking up to this point, everything that we've been preaching on your behalf. We've been telling people, behold, the kingdom is at hand. You're the king. You can't die. And we saw how Peter, in the gospel of Matthew, he wouldn't accept that answer. So he literally went over and grabbed Jesus right there on the spot, literally pulled him aside, and he rebuked Jesus. You are not going to die. And that's when Peter was pushed away by Jesus, and Jesus looked him in the face and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are thinking like a man, not like God. So that was the last event that just happened. Now, you can imagine how Peter was devastated, humiliated. Well, he went from ecstasy to being con uh, Jesus confirming his message or his proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then in the next minute, he's being rebuked by Jesus, where Jesus basically pointed the finger in his face and called him Satan. And in between that, Jesus shocks him with the statement that I, we're going right now to Jerusalem, and I will be murdered. I will be killed, which probably undermined all of Peter's plans that he had for Jesus. And we talked about um, Judas the Zealot was also one of the 12 apostles. His, his goal, his whole life was overthrow Rome. Now I got Jesus, the man to do it. And then Judas, who was in it for the money. This is going to be awesome. I'm going to be in the, king, or the king's court, one of his assistants. I can't wait till he overthrows Rome. So that was the mindset probably of many of these apostles. And Jesus says, no, I'm, I'm going to be killed. He did say he was going to rise from the dead. They weren't tuning in real carefully that part of the statement. That's what it says at the end of the passage here. So they are emotionally devastated in a very short period of time. There's eight months to go until Jesus dies on the cross, fulfills his mission. But Jesus still has to train these apostles for eight months. And they could be so discouraged that oh, I'm, I'm out of here. Maybe privately Jesus and the 12 of them, they're commiserating. What do we do? Judas is like, Psh, I wasn't in for this. I'm out of here. Peter could have been so discouraged that he thought, you know what, I'm going to go back to fishing. Who knows what uh, the zealot was thinking. So immediately on the heels of this devastating revelation that he is going to be murdered and subvert all of their plans, he comes back with immediate encouragement, I think, to encourage their faith so that they can persevere to the end and reach the goal. You know what? Hang in there. Eight more months. And what was that good news he gave him on the heels of this devastating news? And it was, he said, I'm going to die. And then right after that, at the end of the passage of uh, Luke 9 that we saw last week, he says, but I say to you, but I say to you, I, you know, I just told you that I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be murdered. I'm going to die. But all this stuff I've been saying about the kingdom, it's still going to happen. Verse 27, but I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here. Okay, these are his 12 apostles. 
Some of you standing here, not all of you, not all 12 apostles, some of you, a very small, private audience. We're going to learn that it was Peter, James, and John. And there were a few times where Peter, James, and John got a private audience where Jesus would pull them aside. That was his closest circle where they had privileged information. And this Peter, James, and John is actually where Luke got this information that we're about to read in verses 28 to 36. Because Luke wasn't around. He probably wasn't even a Christian. Didn't even live in the area. And yet he's writing down this account of what happened. And his resources were Peter, James, and John, who were eyewitnesses of what we're about to read. And Jesus said to the 12 apostles there, I'm telling you, despite what I just said, that I'm going to be murdered. Good news is there are some of you standing right here right now who will not taste death. You're not going to die until something happens, and that is until you see the kingdom of God. Until you see the kingdom of God. And then they're back to, man, that is what I'm talking about. That's what I signed up for. Again, but they just don't know what that means. Because Jesus was, according to Mark chapter 1, 14 and 15, when Mark summarizes the entirety of Jesus' three-and-a-half-year teaching and preaching ministry, the summary statement was Jesus came teaching and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. That is the most concise and yet comprehensive summary statement of the content of Jesus' preaching up to this point. What did Jesus preach for two and a half years? Because he was a teacher. He went to over 200 towns in Galilee for a year and a half preaching. What was his message? It was consistent. It was the same. And in one sentence, Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. It wasn't Jesus preached the gospel. That's not enough. That's not sufficient. The gospel means good news. Jesus wasn't only preaching good news. He was preaching some bad news that was real news, and that was judgment. He was preaching a complete message. Jesus was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He wasn't just preaching the kingdom because that doesn't include the gospel, the good news. It was the good news of the kingdom. It was all inclusive, which is a good reminder for us. What was it that Jesus was preaching for these two and a half years? What was it that Jesus commissioned his 12 apostles that we saw just recently to go out in the neighborhoods? And preach? What message were they preaching? They were preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And if we could listen in on a message that Jesus might teach or preach in this day, what might he say? Well, God's given us that information. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. That's what he preached wherever he went, the essence of it. So if you read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, three entire chapters, that's the message of the king. And we know that typified what Jesus was preaching. That is the gospel of the kingdom. Because in Matthew chapter 5, as it begins in verse 3, right out of the gate, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Theirs is the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And then the other gospel says the kingdom of God is the same thing. This is a message about the kingdom. He goes on for three chapters. He closes his sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 7, verse 21, as he wraps it up, like two bookends, bringing closure to the theme. What have I just been preaching about for three chapters? The Sermon on the Mount. He says, in the future, someday in the future, at the end of the age, some of you will stand before me as judge and you will say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name and cast out demons and do miracles and prophesy? And Jesus said, well, some of you, some of you I'm going to say, I never knew you. I never knew you. And you'll, you will not be allowed to enter into my kingdom. So he begins the Sermon on the Mount with the theme of the kingdom. He ends it with the kingdom. And so that's what he's been preaching for two and a half years. That's what they've been preaching. That's what they've been listening to. And if you read Matthew 5 through 7, the famous, the great Sermon on the Mount, you read through it and look carefully for what we think the, gospel of the, me the message of the gospel is today. The, the gospel of the kingdom is it's missing the greatest component, and that is the death of Christ. You read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. This is the message of the kingdom, and not one time does Jesus refer to his death. Not one time does he refer to his resurrection. Not one time does he refer to the ascension, the essence of the gospel as we understand it. But he's still preaching the message of the kingdom, the good news about the kingdom. And what he was doing is he's preaching the emphasis that was given all throughout the entire Old Testament. That was the kingdom. God was preparing the kingdom. The king is coming, the king is coming, and here's all the components of the kingdom, and God will fulfill the kingdom of God on the earth. And one thing New Testament believers didn't initially understand, including the apostles, is that, yes, God would someday fulfill 
all kingdom truths on the earth, but it would happen incrementally, little by little, separated by many years, even centuries in terms of its full fulfillment. So to this day, is the kingdom of God on earth? Well, yes and no. In its ultimate manifestation and fulfillment? No, absolutely not. Not even close. Not according to what the Old Testament prophecies predicted about the kingdom of God on earth. Not even close. So keep in mind the apostles, the 12 apostles, they were Jewish. They could be in their 20s and 30s for all we know. They grew up in Jewish homes. They grew up being taught about Yahweh. They grew up virtually memorizing the Torah or the first five books of the Old Testament. They grew up going to synagogue. That's their worldview. They know all the prophets of the Old Testament. They know what Psalm 2 says, very short psalm, and it is explicit that God's Messiah will rule the earth, on the earth, physically in glory. And he will crush his enemies, Psalm 2. They were looking forward to that. That was their heart's desire. They knew, Daniel chapter 7, that the Messiah would come and he would reign in glory on the earth with his saints who would be shining like the sun, and he would crush his enemies. They knew Zechariah 13 and 14 says the same thing. At the end of the age, the Messiah would come and he would land and his feet would land in Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives and he would reign as king and he would crush his enemies and he would overcome and dominate all who were persecuting the Israelites and defend them and raise them up in glory. And he would rule literally on the earth as a king, as a political leader, as well as a religious leader, savior, Messiah. This is explicit. This is in Zechariah. These were Jewish men, the apostles. They knew these passages. And in that passage of Zechariah 12, 13, and 14, at the end of the age of the promise of the coming of the Messiah, who would rule the earth in glory. And the New Testament reveals that will be a thousand years called the millennium on earth. And there would be ongoing learning. People would be in resurrected, glorified bodies. Some uh, people would not be. But Jesus is there physically in a resurrected body, reigning supreme as the monarch of planet earth. And they're celebrating, and they're celebrating Feasts and one of the feasts that they will be celebrating during the millennium, during the kingdom, in glory, on an annual basis, is the Feast of Booths, Tabernacles. The Feast of Ingathering, it's called. The Feast of Tents. It went by many names. And so they knew that, and they're looking forward to that. That was a time of celebration. There were three great feasts in the Old Testament that God told Moses, my people need to celebrate these feasts annually. And one of the three, the last of the three, actually the greatest of the three, the most Uh, celebrated of the three because it was a feast of celebration, of joy, of rejoicing, of thanksgiving, was the the Feast of Booths, of Tabernacles. What they were required to do one time a year for seven days is they had to leave their cushy brick house now that they're in the Promised Land and go get a bunch of palm branches and sticks, and they'd had to make a hut in the backyard. It was like a little hut, tent. You ever put a tent in your backyard? That was the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles or Tents. And they had to live in it for a week. And this was a tangible reminder of what God's people had to do as God set them free from Egypt under Moses' leadership where they lived in the wilderness for 40 years in tents, temporary wooden tents. And that was the Feast of Booze or Tabernacles. And the best that we can figure out in scholars from the chronology of the four Gospels, if you put them all together and figure out a chronology, and we can with pretty reliable uh, observations, Between the four Gospels, we know that Jesus' ministry was three and a half years. We know he began ministry at age 30 because Luke 3.23 tells us that. So we can pretty much figure out a good estimation of the chronology of his ministry. And the passage we're looking at today is about six to eight months before he dies, which on the Hebrew calendar, feast calendar, it is the season of the Feast of Booths when this incident happens. Keep that in mind. That one feast that will be celebrated during the entire kingdom on the earth with Jesus reigning as king. And it was a time of celebration, the Feast of Booths. So, this great promise, verse 27, Jesus said to them, But I say to you truthfully, there are some of you here, standing here, will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God. And I rehearsed those Old Testament passages because they're so well known. And no doubt the 12 apostles, when they hear the kingdom of God, that's what they're thinking. The full manifestation of the Messiah in glory on the earth as conqueror, warrior, king, and savior. And God's people are right next to him and behind him. 
They are dominated and threatened by no one else at that time. That's what they were looking for. And they knew it was going to happen. So they're hearing, wow, Jesus just said that some of us are going to see the incoming of the kingdom of God before we die. That is awesome. So their expectations were coming from Old, uh, Old Testament scripture, but they were ill-informed as to the timing of it and the incremental way that God would implement it, which is a characteristic of biblical prophecy that you always got to keep in mind, where many times these prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Joel, I could go on and on, where they give a prophecy, thus saith the Lord. One of the best examples is Joel, because it's a shorter chapter. Thus saith the Lord. When you're studying Joel, okay, and then he makes a prediction. This is going to happen, whether it's a, a, a locust plague or something like a locust plague, and then God's going to do something. His wrath is going to be manifest at the end of the age. And just in one chapter, you're trying to figure out, wait a minute. Because just in one chapter, Joel said, Thus saith the Lord, this is going to happen in the future. God's going to do it guaranteed. And he could be referring to one of three things. It could be an immediate historical fulfillment that happened in the days of Joel. Or it could be something that is fulfilled at the second coming of Christ, which would be 800 years before Joel, but 2,000 years in history for our point of view. And then the third possibility is that Joel is talking about something that has yet been fulfilled from our perspective, and it will be fulfilled at the end of the age. So here, Joel writes it all down. Joel doesn't even know. He, he just thinks this is all going to happen at the same time. This is awesome. And that's how the apostles are thinking. This is all going to happen right now. And yet they were befuddled many times because uh, 1 Peter 1 says that the prophets themselves, they wrote these amazing prophecies about these coming events, and they struggled at times, and they didn't even know who it was talking about or when. They couldn't figure out the timing of these prophecies. So it is very characteristic of biblical prophecy where God gives a prophecy and he gives kind of a preview of the greater coming of that fulfillment. So there are multiple fulfillments of what God said. The historical fulfillment in Joel's day, then the fulfillment that came with the first coming of Christ, and then there's still prophecies unfulfilled that will come at the end of the age. That's why prophetic literature can be so confounding or confusing to study. So you've got to be careful there. But Jesus is a prophet. He's the greatest of prophets, Exodus 18 said he was, or Deuteronomy 18 said he would be the greatest of prophets, and he was. And so he gives a prophecy here, this prophecy. Uh, but it's not fulfilled the way the apostles were expecting. Therefore, there are some standing here who will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God. Uh, the parallel passage for this is actually in Mark chapter 9 and also Matthew 17, 16 and 17. If you put all three of those uh, gospels together, you get a full account of what Jesus actually said. When he made this promise, I'm telling you that some of you here will not die until you see the kingdom of God, says Luke. So you're going to see the kingdom of God, whatever that means. In a moment, in a flashpoint. But here's what Mark and Matthew add to that. Jesus said, you will see, before you die, you will see the kingdom of God after it has come in power. So Luke said, there's going to be a powerful manifestation of an element of the kingdom of God. And then Matthew adds this, before some of you die, some of you will get to see the Son of Man. So Matthew gets very specific. It's not just the kingdom of God. You're going to get to see me. Something about Jesus is about to happen related to the power of the kingdom of God. And you will see it. It will be visible. It will be an outward manifestation of something glorious. It's my promise to you before you die. Boy, that had to be encouraging. Because what did Jesus look like now? Well, he looked like any other human being. Isaiah 52 written 700 years before Christ, a prophecy about Christ. It just said the Messiah would just be normal. Nothing about him that really, it's not really impressive. He didn't stand out. He wasn't radiating with uh, light beams. He didn't have a halo over his head. As a matter of fact, uh, he was marred somewhat, according to Isaiah 52. That's why the Jewish leadership was like, you're the Messiah, are you kidding me? You look like a carpenter. You look like a sibling of Mary's kids. You're not special. That's what he looked like. Human appearance. And then Jesus is saying, no, uh, you are about to see uh, the Son of Man on display in great power. See the Son of Man, Erkomai, coming, says the New American Standard. Not a good translation in your New American Standard. Actually, most English Bibles. That you will see the Son of Man. Erkomai is the Greek word, and it's translated, get this, 19 different ways in your New American Standard Bible. 19. And I will add a 20th that summarizes all those translations. 
displayed. Displayed. That's the best translation in terms of the context. So you will see, Jesus makes a promise. Some of you here aren't going to die until you see the Son of Man, that's me. And he says Son of Man because he's referring to one thing, that's the book of Daniel, referring to the Messiah in blazing glory. You are going to see the Son of Man displayed, manifest. It's going to be something to behold in his kingdom. You're going to see me in kingdom glory. That's what he was saying. They didn't understand that. So let's go ahead and look at this. So he makes that promise. No doubt now they're talking. You can imagine them, the, the 12 apostles, talking about Jesus behind his back and what just transpired. And people are picking on uh, Peter. Peter, you fool, man. Why'd you say that? And that was so dumb. And he rebuked you. And, and then maybe some are thinking, oh, maybe I'll get, I will get to replace Peter. Because, uh, boy, three strikes, you're out, Peter, and he's done that 17 times. So uh, who knows what they were thinking? But we know that eight days transpires after this promise. Eight days. So it's immediate. It's not eight months. He dies in eight months. But Jesus, in his wisdom, God in his wisdom, knew he needed to encourage the apostles. He just told them and, and that he was going to be killed. And that took all the wind out of their sails. So he's going to encourage them like They've never been encouraged before. So let's go ahead and read the passage, Luke 9, and see what happens. Basically, what I am proposing is that verses 28 through 36 is the, account, is the fulfillment of the promise that is made in Luke 9, 27. When Jesus said, some of you uh, aren't going to die until you see the Son of Man revealed or displayed in kingdom glory. And that is fulfilled to the T in verses 28 through 36 in the event we call the transfiguration. The transfiguration. Uh, is there anybody here who has never heard a full-blown sermon study in a detailed manner on the tr transfiguration before? Can you just raise your hand real quick? Curious. Okay, there's, there's plenty of you. That, that's that is surprising to me, but I knew if I asked that question, I would see that. Because this is Jesus being put on display like never. There is no other account in all four Gospels in the 33 years of his life where this happened, this manifestation of his glory. It is unique. It is alone. It is unparalleled. Every other time we see him just as the humble, weak, and lowly, isolated man. And this is the greatest contrast. And that's why Luke includes it. Theophilus, if you're thinking about Jesus, you need to know Jesus for who he truly is. You've probably heard stories, probably heard accounts. And even in the gospel stories, you hear about his birth as a baby who's totally helpless. And then he lived in obscurity for 30 years. We know nothing about him. And then you, maybe you heard that he was totally rejected and, and got killed as a helpless victim. And everybody ostracized him, even his apostles, his followers abandoned him. If that is all you heard about Jesus, then you have a wrong view of Jesus. This needs to be added to your understanding of who Jesus is. You need to be informed by this great reality because it's a pre precursor of how Jesus actually is and will be the rest of his reign for all eternity. So if I were to ask you, uh, think about Jesus for a moment. When I say Jesus, what do you think of? What do you picture? Or specifically, if I were to ask you, think about Jesus of what he is like now. And it'd be interesting if you did that, just talking to people, even Christians. Uh, when you think of the word Jesus, or you think about what is Jesus like now, they come up with some interesting answers. They think of him as a baby. we got Christmas season coming. Oh, that's Jesus, the lowly baby. Oh, okay, yeah, that's in the Bible, but he's not like that anymore. Or they think of Jesus as the one for three and a half years who was the lowly one, the man of sorrows, uh, who had no place to lay his head, that everybody abandoned, who was murdered. And they think of that, just the man Jesus. But that's, the, that's true, that's in the Gospels, but that's not who he is now. Or maybe like some religions and huge denominations, when they represent Jesus today, it's Jesus is nailed to a cross in what we call a crucifix. That is not Jesus' status now. That was true for six hours, and that was it. That wasn't the end of the story. That was the beginning of the story. So no, when you think of Jesus, you're not thinking of a crucifix. That is not who he is. Some of you might be thinking, well, when he rose from the dead, he was in a physical body, and he appeared to Martha and other disciples, and they thought he was the gardener. So he, he couldn't have been like too much from just an ordinary looking human being. Like maybe he looked like a gardener. So that's really 
that conception of he was in a new body, he was in a resurrection body, he had the healed wounds on his hands, and there was probably something uh, majestic about him because he was in a resurrected body, but that's not, even that is not how he appears today. That is not the Jesus you should be thinking of. When you think of Jesus, you should be thinking one thing. And that's in Revelation chapter 1. Because that's the next time we see Jesus. His face is shining like the sun. His clothes and his raiment are as white as wool, resplendent as the lightning. His feet are like burnished bronze. His voice is like overpowering many waters, like thunder. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His words are like a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. That is a frightening Jesus. That's an awesome Jesus. That's what Jesus is like now. If you thought about what is Jesus like now, we know that because when he was ascended into heaven, it says that the Father exalted him on high as a reward. That happened when he ascended and went back into heaven and he even prayed in John 17. Father, just before his death, Father, give me, restore unto me the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. What was that? Resplendent, blinding glory. That's what happened when he got to heaven, when he ascended. That's what he will look like when he returns again someday. Now let me ask you, when I say Jesus, what do you think about? And more specifically, what does Jesus look like now? And so now let's go to this passage because the twelve apostles get, or, uh, the three apostles get a little glimpse of this glory of what Jesus is actually like. You can't see God unveiled and live. No man can. That's, that's what the Bible says. Can't see him in his glory. Moses wasn't even allowed to see God. Moses said in Exodus 33, God, show me your glory, or in Deuteronomy. Show me your glory. I want to see your full display of your glory and manifestation of all your attributes and your awesomeness. I want to see it. And God said, no, Moses, you can't see me. No man can see God and live. But I will go by the rocks, and you can see a glimpse of me. You can see a little bit of my glory, and it will be veiled so that you won't be overpowered and die on the spot. Just a little bit. So God gave Moses a unique peak of his glory, and God allowed his glory to go by. What does glory mean? Glory is a manifestation of the attributes of God. And it's, it is always visible. It's always something you can see. It always coexists with bright, brilliant, sometimes blinding light. Always the glory of God. When they built the tabernacle, they did everything. Moses finished building the tabernacle in uh, Exodus chapter 40. And when he was done, it said that the glory of the Lord hovered over the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle uh, and all this brilliant light and lightning and thunder and fire. It was a manifestation of his glory because God the Father doesn't have a body. So get that out of your mind. Because nothing in the universe can contain his being. God is spirit. But he manifests his glory. And he does it always through resplendent light to the degree that we can handle. That is the glory of God. The greatest revelation of the glory of God is the incarnation, the person of Jesus Christ. Because he is God. He is the God-man. And even while for those 33 years he was veiling uh, his true nature. He was shrouding the essence of his deity. And here he's just going to open up a little peek. Peter, and it's real quick. Peter, James, and John. Let's look at it. Eight days, starting at verse 28, Luke 9. Eight, some eight days after these sayings. Uh, Matthew and Mark say six days. And then Luke adds some about eight days, meaning there was the day he made the prophecy. There are six intervening days, like Mark and Matthew say. And then on the eighth day, Jesus fulfilled it. That's what, So they are perfect harmony. All three Gospels. Eight days after Jesus made the promise and told them that some of you are going to see me in full glory as I would exist in the kingdom. Eight days later, he took along Peter, James, and John. So he takes away uh, from the 12, the three inside apostles, Peter, who would be the spokesman, John and James, and they went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, Jesus is praying, the three apostles, they are sleeping they're not necessarily faulted for that. It's not necessarily sin, but that is an indication of their weakness. They're sinners. Jesus has no sin. Jesus is a real man, but he has no sin. 
He did get tired. He needed to sleep. He needed to eat. He got hungry. He had emotions. He was 100% human. But he also didn't have indwelling sin. So he had strength they didn't have. And he knew the Father in a way that they didn't. So he's praying they're sleeping. And they're deep in sleep, it says, uh, in these three Gospels, if we take them together. And uh, for the rest of the reading, I'm adding in what uh, Matthew and Mark say, just to give you the fullness of the story. About eight days after these sayings, Jesus took along Peter, John, and James, uh, James being the brother of John, and they went up on a high mountain. It's not just any mountain. It's a high mountain. could be Mount Hermon. We're not sure. But it's up there in Galilee, high mountain, by themselves to pray. It's just the four of them. And while Jesus was praying, he was transfigured before them. He was metamorphosized is the word, says Matthew. While he was praying, he was transfigured before the three apostles. The appearance of his face was different, radically different, heteros, radically different. His face, what was different about him? Well, his face shone like the sun, brilliant sun, blinding sun. And his clothes, his garments became exceedingly white as bright light, gleaming Glistering, says the King James. The word means dazzling, radiant, like lightning. That word is used to refer to describe lightning. His clothes are like lightning. His face is like the sun. And then Mark adds this. He was so bright white as no launderer on earth can whiten the clothes. I didn't know they had launderers, but they did. And behold, and get this, behold... Two men instantly appeared to the apostles next to Jesus, and these two men were talking with Jesus. These two men? And these two men were Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory. So Moses and Elijah are also in glory, whatever that looks like. But you could see it because glory is light. And they were speaking of Jesus' departure, literally. They were, they were talking to Jesus about his exodus. That's the word. That's why they translate it, his departure. Well, what is that? King James says they were talking to him about his decease, about his death. That's how Jesus would depart this world, through death, right? Well, not really. I mean, he would die. That was the entry. And then he would be raised again, and then he would ascend into heaven. But they were talking about all that was involved in his exodus from here on planet Earth back into heaven. That's what they're talking about. And Elijah and Moses, they, they knew who Jesus was. They'd actually spent much time with Jesus up in heaven before he was born here. So a little nice, beautiful reunion. And they are talking. You know, I said that Peter and the apostles need to be encouraged because they got discouraged because Jesus said, I'm going to be killed, which probably undermined all of their plans and their agenda. And this is very encouraging. You know who else needed to be encouraged? Jesus himself. I mean, imagine. He came for one thing, and that was to die. And he finally unveils it after training his apostles for two and a half years. And he, he goes to the, the lead guy, Peter. Certainly, Peter knows the plan. And, Peter's, and he says, I'm going to die. And Peter says, no, you're not. Talk about discouraging. Jesus needed to be encouraged. What does God the Father do because he loves the Son so much? I'm going to encourage you, Jesus. Here are two guys I know uh, believe you about what you need to do. To fulfill your mission. They know you need to die. They know you need to fulfill the mission. They know that's why you came. They're old friends of yours. You used to see them up in heaven for 1,400 years before you were born and 800 years before you were born. Moses and Elijah. And what are they talking about? His death, his departure, his exit from this world. How encouraging. And God would do that periodically at different times in Jesus' ministry, like after 40 days of being in the desert, basically starved. It said immediately after that, God sent the angels to, quote, minister to Jesus. Or when he was suffering in the garden, dripping, as it were, blood out of his pores of utter distress, overcome with distress at the prospect of dying and being tormented by his father. And then God gave him some relief by the, the angels who ministered to him. Uh, the woman at the well ministered to Jesus as he was thirsty with a cup of water. Jesus needed encouragement as well as the God-man, as the perfect, sinless God-man. How encouraging this must have been. Moses and Elijah. Uh, verse 32, Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. They were wiped. 
they were from. Don't, and don't look down your nose, making fun of the apostles. Oh, there you go, sleeping again. Because you know what you would have been doing and me? We would have been sleeping. We aren't any different. We are just as weak and frail. Listen to a few sermons on different preachers, and they're just bashing Peter left and right. Oh, Peter said this. Oh, Peter has his foot in mouth. Oh, Peter, and they're sleeping. <laughs> we wouldn't have done any better. Jesus probably chose Peter because of at least he had the potential for great leadership, which not everybody has. It's very rare. What, what are the ingredients to a great leader? Well, in the time of crisis or confusion, a good leader thinks, I got to do something and I got to say something. And that's what Peter did. Up to this point, usually at the right time and said the wrong thing. But anyway, Jesus is going to straighten that. But at least he's got the attributes. I got to do something. I got to say something. What's John and James doing over there? Scared to death, flat on their face, not saying it. So Peter at least had this amazing courage. Good leader. He had the makings of a good leader. So now Peter and his companions have been overcome with sleep. But when they were finally awake, Maybe it was the uh, lightning and thunder that was in the clothes of Jesus that woke them up after it shook the earth. And they came to their senses, and then all of a sudden they wake up, and it says the apostles, they saw Jesus' glory. I mean, what an understatement. They looked up and saw Jesus' glory. So think of looking directly at the noonday sun and all of its fullness at the right time of year, or if you did that very long, you would go blind. That's what they saw. So they're looking up and they saw his glory and all his clothes. They were like lightning. And they saw the two men, Moses and Elijah, the two men who were also in glory, shining as bright as the sun, probably. That's what they see. And they, uh, as the two men were standing with him, and as the two men were leaving Jesus, so they had their conversation, talking about the Exodus, talking about his death and all the details. Uh, Peter said to Jesus, so, so Peter, he's waking up, he's trying to focus. He probably thought he was still in a dream. Man, that was a good dream. Jesus in his kingdom and his glory. Man, this dream is great. This dream is like 3D. It's a, no, he's awake. Wow, that's really Jesus. What is happening here? Wait, who are those guys? These two men? That's why it says uh, there were two men, two men. Because two, probably initially, these two men who were in glory, they probably didn't have name tags or they probably weren't holding a sign. Hi, Peter. I am Moses. And by the way, I am Elijah. It's just two men from heaven in glory. And then as the three Gospels recount this years later, they literally say, well, by the way, it was Moses and Elijah. Well, how did Matthew know that? How did Mark know that? Well, Mark got his information from Peter. How did Luke know that? Luke got his information from the apostles, and they told him. So it was revealed to them on the spot. So Moses and Elijah were introduced. Maybe Jesus was the one. Okay, men, uh, I want you to meet somebody, two of your favorite heroes. Who are the greatest? Who are the, if you could pick two of the greatest men in the history of Israel in the Old Testament, who would you pick? No, it's a no-brainer. It's like asking, who are the greatest NBA basketball players of all time? It's a no-brainer. It's Michael Jordan and Larry Bird. There is no second, third option. It's a done deal. And that's the same for uh, uh, the apostles, the two greatest men in Old Testament history. It was Moses and Elijah. Well, here they are. I told you I reveal kingdom glory for you before you die. Here it is. Two of your greatest heroes. Peter, I saw that full-blown poster you had hanging on your hut of Moses in his glory, in his heyday. So Moses and Elijah, and the significance even of Moses and Elijah is amazing because uh, this wasn't just random or by chance. Uh, they were indeed two of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself would summarize the entire Old Testament by calling it the law and the prophets. Well, who gave the law? Moses. Who was the greatest of the prophets? Elijah. Also, they're chosen, I think, because of their unique departures out of this world. Because what are they talking about? Jesus' departure out of this world. They had something to say. You know what, Jesus? I had, I had a pretty unique departure, said Moses. You know, uh, if you recall Jesus, and since you're omniscient, you know... But when I died, it was kind of a mystery, and they, nobody was allowed to be around when they buried my body. So nobody knew where my body was buried. And then Jude tells us in the New Testament uh, a little mystery about my body that Satan and Michael the archangel were fighting over my body. And God would not allow Satan to have Moses' body. Boy, that's weird. That is unique. So Moses 
had a story to tell about a strange departure out of this earth. Well, then Elijah's like, Psh, that ain't nothing. You know what? I didn't even die. Remind, you know, Moses, remember that? I didn't even die. You died. God likes me that much. I never died. I was taken up in his glorious heavenly chariot. Thank you very much. Talk about a departure. And then you've got Jesus' unique departure. He came for one purpose. That was to die to be crucified as a criminal on behalf of the sins of the world, of those who would believe in him. Not only that, he would rise again from the dead as the God-man, and then he would exit this world through the ascension, in, surrounded by angels, into the clouds, with the eyewitnesses of many of his people from Jerusalem in glory, and he will return the same way. And that's why he came, and that's what they're talking about. This amazing exodus, departure of the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior of the world that is imminent. That is imminent. So Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep. Uh, they saw that it was Moses and Elijah, um, and they learned that it is Moses and Elijah. Verse 34, but while he was saying this, a bright cloud formed and began to overshadow them. The cloud is over Jesus and um, Moses and Elijah, not over the three apostles, probably based on the Greek text. So this bright cloud starts to form with light, and they were afraid as Jesus and Moses and Elijah entered this bright cloud. They were afraid. The apostles were very afraid. First of all, they were probably afraid, almost scared to death when they first saw Jesus in his glory. That was frightening. Now all of a sudden they see this cloud hovering over them in resplendent glory, and now they're doubly frightened. And then behold, a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, my chosen one. God the Father speaking from heaven. Now, now they're really afraid to hear God's voice, overcome with guilt from their sin probably. Literally a vo an audible voice out of heaven. This is my beloved son, my chosen one with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So God exhorts the apostles, listen to him. That would be the message of the apostles when the church starts. You go around and tell people about Jesus, and you tell people to listen to him. He is the king. Peter just didn't listen to Jesus eight days ago. This is the simple lesson. Listen to him. This was predicted in Deuteronomy 18. The great prophet, the prophet greater than Moses would come, and God would raise him up, and people are to listen to him. It's kind of sad when you go evangelizing in the neighborhood like we did yesterday. And you're there to tell them about Jesus. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to listen to him. It's grieving. This is the good news that can save your soul for eternity. And you don't want to listen? Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, <laughs> finally they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. When the voice had spoken, uh, raising their eyes suddenly, they looked around, and then they saw no one, and Jesus was, boom, all of a sudden, he's all by himself. Moses and Elijah are gone. Jesus is no longer in full glory. It's the same Jesus. They're down on the ground. They're shaking, terrified, overcome with fear, and Jesus comes to them to minister to them, and he touches them. He touches them. That's what he did to John in John chapter 1, and forgot to touch him. John, it's okay. After seeing the frightening glory of a sinless God who's not just your Savior but also your judge, that's frightening. And the apostles kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. Jesus had just said in the last passage we looked at uh, when Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Okay, that's excellent, but don't tell anybody. Why? Because that's not the full gospel message. He has to die first. He has to rise first. He has to ascend on high first, exalted as Lord of Lords. That's the full message. This is Don't give people a partial message. Jesus is not just a miracle worker. Another Moses or another Elijah. Another thing about Moses and Elijah, why were they two so great? Uh, there's a lot of different reasons, but it could be that nobody did miracles like Moses and Elijah. Moses did as many as 42 miracles that we know. 42, nobody else even comes close. And Elijah, at least 16. Nobody, no other prophet comes close. That's why I was saying they were two of the greatest prophets. It's also interesting that Jesus said, I'm going to give you a preview or a commercial of what my kingdom 
of coming in my kingdom glory is like. Well, what is that like, Jesus? Well, he tells us in Matthew 24, he tells us in, especially in Revelation 19, at the end of the age when Jesus returns the second time in glory with his face shining like the sun on that white horse with all of the angels and all of the saints to crush his enemies and he lands on earth. When he comes again, he comes for his people. And he also tells us in 1 Thessalonians that Jesus will also come for his people who are alive on the earth at the time of the rapture, where he doesn't come to earth, but he will suck them up and meet them in the air and then take them back to heaven where they will be with him forever. So those are two comings that are still coming, the rapture and the second coming. The first one, the rapture, Jesus primarily coming for, for living saints. And in the second coming, he's coming for, in many respects, dead believers, or even at the rapture, he's coming for dead believers and living saints to be translated. And so even Moses and Elijah are a picture of that. Moses, the, the saint who had to die. Elijah, the saint who got raptured, who never died. And was given glory when he got to heaven. So just a couple more highlights. Um, let's finish this passage because I want to add a, it's not in Luke's passage, but it's very important. They kept silent about this. So you got six to eight months. Uh, why are they being silent? Because Jesus told them, don't say anything about this. Can you imagine Peter holding his tongue for the next six to eight months? I don't want to pick on Peter. But I'm just He probably pulled it off. God gave him the grace and he pulled it off. In the next six to eight months, he's 24-7 with the other nine apostles and he's not supposed to say anything. So Peter, man, you left all day with Jesus. What's up with that? What did you do? What did you see? Tell us. Well, apparently he held his tongue and didn't say anything. He obeyed. Six to eight months. Wow. Good test for leadership integrity. Can you keep a secret? Apparently Peter did. They kept silent. They kept silent. They reported it to no one in those days. What days? All the days before Jesus died on the cross. Kept silent about it. And then Mark adds this. And as they were coming down the, from the mountain, Jesus gave them orders, a command, not to relate to anyone what they had said. Don't tell anybody about what you've just seen, the transfiguration. Until the Son of Man rises from the dead. There it is. As soon as Jesus rises from the dead, then Peter, James, and John, you can tell everybody. Or tell whoever. And they did. So no doubt when Jesus rose from the dead, and Peter was doubting that he rose from the dead, and then Peter ran to the cave or the tomb, and he saw that Jesus' body was gone. And then that same night, Jesus appears to Peter in a resurrected body. And a week later, in a resurrected body, and over the course of 40 days, in a resurrected body. And then Jesus is about to, says, I'm about to leave. I'm about to send to heaven. And what did the apostles ask? What did Peter ask in Acts chapter 1? He said, Lord, is it this time? Finally, you're going to restore the kingdom. Is it now? That's what I've been waiting for. And Jesus said, nope. Actually, that's none of your business. The timing of it is none of your business. Just be faithful. Remember what I told you at the transfiguration? Go around and tell people about me, what the Father said. Listen to Jesus. That was their message. That was their mission. And Peter and the apostles fulfilled that faithfully even to the death. One note I want to make here on going back into the passage. Um, in Luke there, Luke chapter 9, they went on this mountain, verse 28, and while Jesus was praying, suddenly the appearance of his face became different, metamorphosis, that's where you get the word transfiguration, it was transfigured. His face was shining uh, like the sun, as we said, and his clothes were glistening and giving off light. What was going on here? Uh, that was not God shining light on Jesus, that was light emanating from Jesus. That was his nature coming out. Because he is fully God. So let's not get confused there. That speaks of his very nature and essence. That no man could see that unveiled and live. And they got to see a picture of it. A little bit of it. Jesus in his glory. So that essence is a testimony to the fact that Jesus is deity in his very nature. He is God. God is light, says 1 John. And Hebrews says that Jesus is the very image of God. The exact representation of his nature in resplendent glory. That's Jesus. And we see a little bit of it here, testifying to who he is. He is deity, he is God, he is Yahweh in human flesh. He is all glorious, Theophilus. This is who Jesus is. This could be your savior. This will be your judge. Uh, another observation here. 
that I want to make a comment on was verse 32. It says, now Peter and his companions were overcome with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw Jesus' glory and the two men standing there. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, so uh, he gets to see, we don't know how long this transpired, but man, what a scene. And Peter is just, he's overcome, he's got fear, he's really being driven by fear, and he, he really can't even think straight. We know that because that's what the passage says. He's being overcome. Uh, and then when they leave, but, uh, verse 32, and as Elijah and Moses were leaving, Peter said to Jesus, he blurts it out, Master. Actually, he called Jesus Master, Lord, Rabbi. He doesn't even know what to say. He's just, every title I can give Jesus. This is awesome. Master, Lord, Rabbi. And he makes a request. Uh, it is good for us to be here. Thank you for allowing the three disciples to be here, the three apostles. It is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles. What was going on probably down the hill, down the road, uh, the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles, concurrent with this event? That's probably why this is in Peter's mind. Celebration, thanksgiving, glory, God did a great thing. It was all about Exodus. They're talking about the Exodus. Tabernacle was Tabernacles was celebrating the Exodus. That was the Exodus. This is a greater Exodus. Peter just didn't realize it. But what's with the tabernacle thing? Give thanks to God. Really, another thing about the tabernacles was Jesus wanted to, or Peter, that was a seven-day festival. He didn't want the moment to end. Man, this is great. Now, this is good for us to be here. Well, I want to capture this moment. Can we keep this? Can we build tabernacle? Jesus, can you call Moses and Elijah back so we can be here the next seven days? It's got to be part of what he's thinking or just blurting out because he said the tabernacles. That wasn't a random thought. He celebrated, if Peter's 29 years old, he celebrated tabernacles for 29 years in a row, faithfully. As a matter of fact, it was the biggest holiday of the year. Can we capture this moment? Can we encase it? Can we put it in a bottle? Can we keep it forever? This is so awesome. You can't really fault Peter for that. He just blurted it out. He wasn't thinking. Let us make three... Jesus doesn't even answer that because it's so absurd. As a matter of fact... Three glorified men are not deserving or worthy to be encased in bamboo sticks in the wilderness. No, that is not fitting, Peter. But let's build these tabernacles, one for you, Jesus, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And then this comment Luke puts, not realizing what he was saying. Not realizing what he was saying. So here it is 25 years later, and Luke's not putting all the blame on Peter, it's understandable. He was so shaken. He didn't know what he was saying. He just blurted it out. So then Jesus goes on to uh, allow the Father to interpret this unprecedented event. It's nothing like it they would see during their lifetime. And they wrote about it. So if you have opportunity, read 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, where here it is 30 years later. 25 years later, Peter writes his epistle, maybe even closer to 30 years later, 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter gives a couple verses that, you know what, Jesus is the Christ, he's the Messiah. That's what the prophet said, and I know this personally because I saw him in his majestic glory on the mountain that day. I am an eyewitness. And it was important for Jesus to have Peter, James, and John there. Three, because in light of Deuteronomy 19, to validate truth, especially of this high order, you needed the testimony of two or three eyewitnesses. That was purposeful. That phrase is repeated at least four times in the New Testament, to validate truth with two or three eyewitnesses. Peter was an eyewitness. He saw it. He talked all about it. He wrote about it in 2 Peter. John the Apostle was an eyewitness. He wrote about it more than once. He begins the Gospel of John talking about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then verse 14, he talks about him as the Word of God who became flesh. The Word became flesh. He became a man. He tabernacled among us. And we beheld his glory. That's what John is talking about. He is the Son of God. He is the Son of Man. He is the Savior of the world. He is the only way to heaven. He's the only way to forgiveness of sin. He's the only way to know God the Father. Bow the knee to him. Believe it. By faith, and God will answer that prayer because of his grace and change your destiny forever. Thank God for Jesus, the Savior. With that, let's go ahead and pray. Father, again, we thank you for the truth of your word and just even you reminding us in your word of its nature that it is living, that it is active, and that it is piercing. 
And the prospect of seeing you in unveiled glory should be frightening for all of us because of our sin. It's continual. We can't shake it in this world. So thank you for your grace, Lord. Thank you for the good news of Jesus, his perfect life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension on high, and his role as Savior so that our sins can be totally forgiven. So we can know you and be adopted in your family. That is the good news. May we meditate on that great and glorious truth. And God, I just pray that this beautiful vignette, little picture where Jesus unveiled his glory, that uh, it wasn't hidden in obscurity in history, but you had it inscripturated and written down for us. We can meditate on it. We can be encouraged by it. And we can look forward to it. And this is a motive for persevering and living in this very difficult world, this fallen world, this sinful world, knowing that the reward is worth it, and that is meeting Jesus, our Savior, face-to-face in glory. So we give you all the praise. We thank you, Father, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.